Dr. Umar Johnson, welcome to Vlad TV. Thank you, glad to be here. Absolutely, you know, big fan of your work. Saw you on The Breakfast Club a few times. Appreciate it, appreciate it. Yeah, we're real close to Charlemagne. Charlemagne's been on the show with us for many, many years. Okay, okay. So let's talk about your background. Where'd you grow up exactly? North Philadelphia, North Central Philadelphia. Born and raised, still live there. Okay, and what was the environment like when you were growing up? Uh, we grew up humble. I wouldn't say poor because I think poverty is more of the spirit than it is of the economic realities in which a person lives. You know, my mother, my father, they did the best they can to raise us. They did a good job. Love them both. They still here on the earth, breathing air with me. Uh, I love North Philadelphia. It's home. It's where I come from. So my roots are still there. I still hang out there. Many of my friends are still there. Now, what was it growing up in that environment that started to really kind of mold the kind of life that you went on to live? I would say that began to take place when I was in fourth and fifth grade. I attended a elementary school, George G. Meade Elementary, named after one of America's Civil War generals. We had a mandatory black history class, fourth and fifth grade, which was taught by Miss Vivian Green or Lillian Green, Miss Green, who I incidentally ran into a couple years ago. And I think it was the black history class that really gave me a sense of purpose, a sense of direction, a sense of motivation. Subsequent to that, I went to my first family reunion with my father in Baltimore, Maryland. I believe I was in the sixth grade and we were walking in the backyard of a church and there was plenty of Frederick Douglass memorabilia there. And I asked my father, why is there so much Frederick Douglass memorabilia here? And he said, because you are related to him. And it was at that family reunion, the Bailey family, that's when I learned I was related to Frederick Douglass. So I think the fourth and fifth grade black history class with the sixth grade encounter of realizing I was related to arguably the greatest black leader in American history, I think that kind of set me on my purpose and it was solidified after I graduated from Millersville University, became a school psychologist back in the year 2000 and found how special education and ADHD were being used as weapons of mass destruction against African-American boys. And so the purpose found is rooting in advocating for our children within the miseducation machine. Mm -hmm. now, now you got your doctorate? Yes, sir. From the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, July of 2012, American Psychological Association approved program. I would add a disclaimer to that. Um, as you've probably seen in the world of social media, some of the brothers and sisters in my community have uh, created or falsified claims that I did not have a doctorate. Part of that stems from the fact that I never advertised the schools that I graduated from. Obviously, when I speak at universities, they have to vet my background, so I have to provide that information to them. The reason I never advertise the universities is I know that many of them would take issue with what I stand for, what I'm working towards, and my opinions on things. So if I ran around saying I went to PCOM, if I ran around saying I attended Millersville University, if I ran around saying I have a master's in educational leadership, from Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, some people might draw the erroneous conclusion that they support my work. And so out of respect for those institutions, I don't go around with a banner with their names on it because I feel that who I am and my reputation and background is sufficient to support the premises that I stand on. Now, how many years did you end up going to school? Five years of undergrad, Millersville University, a double major, psychology and political science, graduated 
came back to Philadelphia, started a master's program in clinical psychology at Hahnemann University. It was too expensive, so I decided to go back to Millersville. I was Black Student Union president. I was a student leader there. Um, and so I felt if I went back to Millersville, I could get the education paid for. And so I went back and I enrolled in the school psychology program. And I was actually motivated partly to do that by the director of Hahnemann's program, who told me that if you're going to go back to Millersville, get your school psychology cert, because even after you get your doctorate, you cannot test for special education without a school psychology cert. So that was from January of 98. I graduated two days before my 25th birthday in 2000. And then I completed my one year internship with the school district of Philadelphia, 2001. Subsequent to that, I was a school psychologist with the school district of Philadelphia five or six years after which I resigned, became a assistant principal at a Philadelphia charter school, and then went into private practice as a school psychologist, which I've been doing since then. I mean, with my audience, which is the hip hop community, yes, sir. education is not always you know, celebrated. Like when you look yes, at all the biggest rappers today, mm -hmm. Like you can name very few that actually finished college. Yes, sir. Yeah, you know, like the Puffies did a year or two. I think mm -hmm. J. Cole, I'm not sure if yeah, J. Cole J. Cole graduated. attended college. Uh, oh, he graduated? I don't think, I'm not sure if he completed, but I know he attended. See, but that's what I'm talking about. Like in terms of completing college, mm -hmm. hip hop doesn't, doesn't celebrate that, mm -hmm. you know, as, as much as like someone's street cred or, or you know, stuff right. like that, or sometimes even someone's jail time. Yes. Now, what was it for you? Why was it important for you to get an education? For me, I was the first uh, of my mother's children um, to get an opportunity to go to college. Also, being a student of black history, understanding that ancestral struggle for an education, it meant a lot to me. It meant a lot to me. Some of my friends, they transferred out of Millersville University. I don't know if they completed or not. Some of them did. I decided to stay. A lot of us didn't like it at Millersville, predominantly white, Amish context. A lot of racism, not much there in terms of a black cultural affirmation. But I said, I'm here, I'm gonna make the best of it, and I'm gonna finish. And I think that it was by divine design that my undergraduate institution happened to have had the school psychology program. Because had not Millersville had the school psychology program, I wouldn't be a school psychologist today. I would have been a pure clinician. Now my doctorate is in clinical, but it's my school psychology certification through which I do most of my work. And as you know, for which my name has been built. So I don't think that was a coincidence. I think we have to understand the context in which African-American men are reared, educated, and socialized in America. Education itself is not valued in the African-American community, nor is education of African-American males valued by the larger political construct. When you look at our community, black males are rewarded only for being athletes and entertainers. They are not rewarded for being academically excellent. The political structure does not reward them. The religious structure does not reward them. The economic structure does not reward them. I'm also a former school principal. And even in the schools, athletics is given more respect than academic excellence. A mentally gifted child who's at the 99th percentile academically, he may be one of the brightest students in the state or nation, will not get as much attention as an underachieving 
African-American male athlete who may be failing three or four subjects in school, but because he has a great jump shot or he can catch a football, he gets celebrated more than the academic achievers. So I think we, as the African-American community, have to look at that, but we also have to realize that America has a history of undervaluing the intellectual achievements of African-American people. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, you're actually trying to own your own school or buy yes, your build, own school? Like, yes, explain sir. that to me. The uh, Frederick Douglass and Marcus Garvey Academy um, is a school that I conceived of a very long time ago, but began to actually put teeth into the creation of that school a couple of years ago. Uh, we're interested in acquiring the St. Paul's College Lawrenceville, Virginia. It's an HBCU closed down about three years ago and has just been sitting there unoccupied for three years. There's a $2 million price tag on that property. We've raised $700,000 over the past year and a half to try to acquire that property. However, although St. Paul's is still very much an interest of mine, I'm beginning to change my sights and start looking at other schools because having sat for three years, Obviously, the quality of the upkeep is a concern. I had someone go and uh, do an inspection on the school, a realtor who told me I would need to put at least a million dollars into the property after I purchase it. So it's not looking as bright as an option as it used to. Still want it. If they called me today and said, listen, bring us that 700000 and we'll work with you, I'm on my way. Make no mistake about it. But because they're not offering to work with me, I have to start exploring other op opportunities, such as starting with a regular community school, three to 500 students, and then evolving into the residential academy that I want. But my concept is residential academy. I attended a residential academy, Scotland School for Veterans Children in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, which is now closed. So I understand the benefit of being able to control a child's entire environment. Well, that's interesting. You actually want to buy and control your own school. You don't yes. see too many people that actually aspire to that. No, many of us have fell for what I would call the charter school hustle or the charter school trap. Uh, charter schools have actually been on the rise concomitantly as we've seen a decline in African-American independent schools. When charter schools were created in 1990, they were created so that white folk could take public money and educate white children in a school that legally could not be called private, but could pretty much operate as if it was private. So the charter school was a compromise. How do I defund public education without funding private education since we have a separation of church and state clause in public education? So the charter school was that compromise. Once African-Americans started getting involved, and of course, Philadelphia, uh, I live where we have the largest amount of charter schools in the country, Philadelphia, and some of the oldest ones. We also see a backlash against charter schools where they're shutting them down. And I always was not a big proponent of charter schools because I understood that if the state controls it and the state owns it, ultimately at the end of the day, if they want to put you out of business, they can. And that's exactly what they've been doing. We've seen more African-American charter schools across the country be shut down between 2014 and 2015 than we've seen at any other period since charter schools were created. And there's normally three justifications they use to shut the doors on charter schools. One, financial mismanagement. 
this $50 in a $2 million budget unaccounted for. And since we can't find the $50, we're taking your charter. Second, you don't have enough certified public school teachers. And so charter schools, when they first started, did not require that all teachers were certified. Now, many states are requiring 100% teacher certification. What is that doing to the African-American male teacher population? It's shrinking it. So charter schools that once had 50 black male teachers may only have one or two. Charter schools that have an African foundation may now have predominantly white teachers teaching because they can't find enough African-American teachers certified. And the third and the biggest reason for what they use to justify shutting down black charters is low test scores. Your children are below basic. You don't have enough of them who are proficient. So we're going to put you into corrective action, AYP, two years. Test scores don't go up. We shut the door. But the truth is they're not shutting the door because of test scores. They're not shutting the doors because of money. And they're not shutting the doors because of teacher certs. They're shutting the doors because many of these African-American charter schools are in the middle of districts that have been targeted for gentrification. We need these black children out the way because this is supposed to be a strip mall. This is supposed to be a new corporate building. They have to go. So the powers that be work with the political structure and work with the school district to manipulate a lot of African-American charter schools out of existence. In Philadelphia, three black charter schools have been shut down this past year alone. Now, I've seen some of, the, some of the talks that you've had about the school that you're starting. Now, you want the school to be strictly African in terms of overall its focus? Yes, the, 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 the concept, the foundation will be Pan-African nationalism and the principles of African culture. I am a Garveyite, so we are revolutionary Pan-African nationalists, which basically means what? African self-determination in all things. Okay, if the Chinese have their own self-sustaining community, if Anglo-Saxons have their own self-sustaining community, if the Arab and the East Indian have their own self-sustaining community, we need ours as well. Our concept is what is to be done for black people must be done by black people. Legally, you cannot say that this school is only for black children, even if it is private. You are not allowed to discriminate in education on the basis of race. As you know, in 1954, Brown versus Board of Education decision said you cannot use race in education. So I can't say this is a black boy school. OK, I know that ninety nine point nine percent, if not one hundred percent of my students will be African of African descent. But I cannot say that. Ironically, you can only discriminate on the basis of gender or sexuality in public school. So you can have an all boys school. You can have an all girls school. You can have an all gay school, but you cannot have an all black school. You can have an all gay school. That's oh, a, yes. That's Chicago has one. I also believe there's an academy here in New York that I think might be specifically for LBGT students to protect them from being bullied and such things. I just read an article, Atlanta, I believe they're starting an all LBGTQ charter school, I think. Well, you made some comments about the type of school that you want started. You know, number one, you know, since we're talking about the whole LGBT thing, you said that nobody that's, I guess, sexually confused mm -hmm. is going to be allowed as a teacher in your school. Yes, that we'll is correct. That. Now, that's going to be tricky as well. Why? Because you cannot discriminate in hiring on the basis of sexuality either. So is it possible that someone who is sexually confused ends up getting hired at my school? I should hope I do all in my power to prevent such a thing from happening. 
Okay, but it is possible. But if that be the case, then I'm going to have to do something to reverse that because although I do not hate, okay, or advocate harm against members of the LBGT community, I do not see that lifestyle in any way, shape or form being in the best interest of African people. One of the misconceptions of my work is that I hate gays or I want to harm gays. But as a scholar who has more videos on YouTube than any other black scholar alive, I get invited to speak across the world more than any black scholar on the planet. You can't find anything in any message of mine where I've ever advocated harm or hurt against homosexuals. In fact, as a psychotherapist, I do therapy and have done therapy with homosexuals. And I can tell you that when it comes to suicide and low self-esteem and depression, they're at the top of the list for it. So even though I don't agree with the lifestyle, I can still validate the life of the person who practices the behavior. Why do you say sexually confused as opposed to just gay? I say sexually confused because in the African cultural construct, we believe that the universe was founded on an absolute balance of masculine and feminine energy, positive and negative, yin as well as yang. For every man that's a woman, for every woman that there is a man. We believe that complementarity, the balance or attraction of opposites is what the universe is built upon. Every atom has a positive charge and a negative charge. It's what allows the universe to exist. For the sun, there is the moon. For water, there is for earth. For the masculine, there is for the feminine. So from an African perspective, and you will find this perspective very, very prevalent throughout the continent of Africa. Uh, most of us as African people are not pro-homosexual. You don't find any evidence of any African civilization, traditionally speaking, where homosexuality was allowed, considered normal, or openly practiced. We cannot prove that no one was ever not gay, but we can prove that no African society ever legitimized the behavior as something that was to be accepted and practiced openly. Well, you said that no black child is born gay. Yes, I believe okay. that. And of does course, that in psychology, apply to black children or just children in general? I think it's children in general. And that's a big debate in the world of mental health. Psychiatry, psychology, are people born gay? Well, here's the question. Can behaviors be inherited? We know disease can be inherited. We know physical traits can be inherited. Okay, but inheriting a behavior? This comes from the eugenics. Francis Galton, who was Charles Darwin's cousin in London, came up with this movement called eugenics, which means good stock. It's from where Adolf Hitler in the United States of America and the other racist government sought to create a program of population control and extermination. He said that white people were genetically superior to everyone and that black people were genetically inferior to everyone. And he said that we need to selectively bring about the extermination of Africans by limiting their gene pool. And we need to selectively breed white people into a quote unquote master race, which Adolf Hitler picked up and ran away with. Incidentally, I was in Hitler's birthplace last week in Austria speaking. But nonetheless, it was a psychologist who created the eugenics movement and arguing that people are born gay supports the eugenics premise because their idea is that all social problems of black people are a direct result of defective DNA. They say if the black man sells drugs, it was in his DNA. If he drops out of school, it was in his DNA. If the black woman is unmarried with six or seven children, it was in her DNA. They blame all social phenomenon on genetics. Blaming genetics on homosexuality, from my perspective, is another way of trying to validate eugenics 
through the back door. I believe people are um, exposed to it. I believe that they can be manipulated into it. I believe that they can be socialized. For example, I've been a therapist for almost 20 years. I've met a lot of homosexual black males in my work. 95% of the homosexual African-American men I've worked with and Latino were sexually violated as a child before the age of 12. Nearly everyone. So for me, I don't need to look at the studies from Harvard. I don't need to look at the studies from Yale. I don't need to look at the studies from the University of Pennsylvania. My experience, direct work with people in my community makes it clear that the number one, it's not the only route to homosexuality, but the number one route to sexual confusion for black males is molestation, pedophilia before the teenage years. Yeah, I mean, that's always the big debate, you know, in the gay community is whether they were born that way or whether something happened or whether it was just a choice, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I, I don't know. It's one of those things where I haven't been around enough children to really make my own conclusion. You know, mm -hmm. I have heard from some of my friends that you sometimes see kids from a very young age start to have certain... Um, Effeminate you know, traits. You know, behaviors, you know, yeah. where you see boys doing kind of feminine type things. But feminine, effeminization and homosexuality are different though. Yeah. For example, in the schools where I work, there's a kid I could think of right now. He's very effeminate. He's seven years old, his ways are very effeminate. Why? He has nothing but sisters at home. The father's not there. He's almost exclusively raised by the mother and the grandma. You become like that which you are around. So the mother will call me up and say, Dr. Johnson, my son is picking up my daughter's doll. What is he supposed to do if he doesn't have any male playmates so he understands boys are socialized to play with different toys? So the mother is concerned that he may be homosexual. I'm telling her, your son at seven or eight years old isn't even thinking about sex. He's not even thinking about sex. This is not a case of a boy being gay at seven. This is a case of a young African-American male who's being socialized around women and is simply picking up their behavior traits. When he gets older and he's around more socialized to be around males, you will see his behavior may change. So it's very important that we don't confuse effeminate behavior, which is the outward manifestation of stereotypical female behavior traits with homosexuality, which is a sexual attraction to someone of the same gender. Seven-year-olds aren't sexually attracted to anyone. Hmm. Well, you know, like recently we had a story about Young Thug and what he said that when he was 12 years old, because his feet were so small that he would wear like girls, like glittery shoes to school and, you know, his dad would beat him over, you know, overdoing that, but he said he didn't care, he did it anyways. Now, fast forward however many years, you know, whatever, 10 years forward, or I don't know how old he is, but early 20s, you know, Young Thug is wearing women's clothes on a regular basis. Okay. Like his, his latest album cover, he's wearing a full-blown dress. <laughs> okay. And, you know, he's doing Calvin Klein ads, wearing a dress and so forth. Like, when you look at that, are you saying that Young Thug could just like dressing in, in dresses and not be gay at all, based on what you're saying? Oh yes, you can definitely cross-dress and not be gay, without question. In fact, that's one of the diagnoses in psychology is this thing where people have this urge to dress like the opposite gender, but not necessarily be interested in living sexually as a member of the opposite gender. Now going back to the scenario you just gave, and of course I don't know Young Thug, I've never evaluated him or did therapy, but just based on what you said, his father beat him for wearing the high heels. He didn't explain to him why he shouldn't. 
He physically abused him. Okay? That is a form of emasculization. You understand? For a boy to be constantly physically abused by his father, that can lead to low self-esteem. That can lead to him questioning his efficiency or ability to operate his life as a man should and by virtue of the verbal and physical abuse by his father, homosexual thoughts could have been triggered purely from that. So I'm seeing contextual variables that could have played a role into the brother ultimately taking on a homosexual lifestyle. But it wasn't the wearing of the shoes and it wasn't the DNA and it wasn't that he knew at such a young age that he would want to be gay. I think the father and the treatment of the son by the father may have triggered that. For example, I come across cases of African-American boys who are verbally abused by the mother or the father, constantly told, what is wrong with you? Why are you not as good as I am? Why you don't want to play sports? Why are you acting like a girl? They're constantly told they're female. So guess what? They begin to shy away from their identity as a male because they've been told that it's insufficient. You will never be an effective male. So you automatically pull back. You start hanging around girls because you don't feel adequate around the boys. And it only takes one experience with a strong member of the sexually confused community to bring someone who's lonely looking for a place to belong to bring them on over. I see it in the high schools all the time. I'll see a kid, I say, this kid is weak and vulnerable. If that gang comes over here, okay, or if that person, that sexually confused individual meets them and takes them under their wing, they're going to end up having that experience and it might change the rest of their life. It wasn't genetics. It was exposure, experience, socialization, and conditioning. Many people deny being uh, nurtured into homosexuality. They argue nature. One of the reasons why you see this denial is because if I admit that I was not born this way, that it is a choice that I control, and by the way, all behavior is a choice. There is no behavior under the sun I'm aware of that people do not have free will to choose until homosexuality. This is the first behavior ever where the argument or the dominant paradigm that we're being told, the narrative, is people don't choose it. You choose whether you go to work or not, you choose whether you kill someone or not, you choose whether you use drugs, but you don't choose to be gay. It's the first behavior. It's predetermined, first one. So that's an issue in and of itself. But at the same time, uh, the point that I'm trying to make is if I admit that I wasn't born gay, I'm going to be led into an investigation of what triggered this behavior. That's going to take me down the path of childhood where I might have to discuss things I've never discussed with anyone, principally the fact that I might have been molested. And I can tell you, no man, black or white, wants to admit or discuss, no matter how young he was, the fact that another man took my innocence from me, especially when they were a virgin when the innocence was taken. This week's episode of The Vlad Couch is brought to you by HBO's newest comedy series, Insecure. Nowadays, black women in television are shown as strong, confident, successful, and damn near flawless. But Issa and Molly are definitely not killing it. These best friends must deal with their own real-life flaws as they attempt to navigate worlds and cope with their endless series of uncomfortable, everyday experiences. Created by, executive produced, and starring Issa Rae. The new comedy series launches its eight-episode series on Sunday, October 9th at 10.30 Eastern and Pacific, exclusively on HBO. Shot in and around South Los Angeles, 
Insecure incorporates the music of both indie and established artists of color and touches on a variety of social and radical issues that relate to the contemporary black experience. Issa Rae wrote the New York Times bestseller, The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl, which was published in 2015. And we know you've checked out her incredible, successful web series of the same name. Her web content has garnered more than 25 million views and over 200,000 subscribers on YouTube. And she's made Forbes 30 under 30 lists. Twice. We caught a glimpse of the series premiere of Insecure and believe us when we say you are going to laugh. The broken pussy rap alone had us on the floor. Catch a series premiere of Insecure exclusively on HBO this Sunday, October 9th at 10.30 Eastern and Pacific. Now, you know, when we talk about dressing and, and so forth, you know, one of the things that sort of exploded the other day on social media was there was a girl, uh, a teacher, uh, who was an elementary school teacher, and she started posting up pictures, and there's this huge debate on whether or not she's dressing appropriately for, you know, her job. I'm going to show, show you this. Are you familiar with this picture? No, I haven't seen it. Okay, so, so this is a, a teacher who's an elementary school teacher, and people are just arguing over whether she's dressed appropriately. A lot of people are saying yes, and, you know, in the context, they're saying, yeah, and I would get with her, which I think is not really part of the conversation. Right. Me, personally, I feel that she's not dressed appropriately. Mm -hmm. What is your take on it being uh, an educator yourself? I would argue, number one, that the way she's dressed is relatively conservative when compared to the way I see many teachers dress, yeah. white or African-American. Okay. One of the biggest issues I have had as a principal, and I've had to pull some of my teachers to the side, black and white and Latino, you cannot come in here like this, okay? Because these boys are at the age, middle school in particular. See, the other question I would have for you is how old are her students? If well, she is- Elementary school, so up to fifth grade. Okay, up to fifth, I might not have a problem with that up to fifth. If she's middle school, sixth through eighth, she cannot dress like that. Because her body parts are obviously, I mean, she's a well-built woman. The dress in and of itself isn't provocative, but her figure in that dress makes it provocative. K to five, I don't have a problem with that. Six to eighth, six to twelve, I got an issue with that. But here's the conversation. Why is she allowed to dress like that if it is inappropriate for the parents in that school? Because I think the parents in that school ultimately have to make that decision. The reason she gets to dress like that is because the... Um, American Federation of Teachers and the National Education Association. These are the two largest teacher unions in America. They are the Democratic and Republican Party of Education. Every school district, most school districts are under one or the other. They have bullied the school districts of America into this contract that's been around at least for 30 years that says you cannot tell a teacher how to dress for work. It is the only profession I know of, education, and I'm an educator, where teachers cannot be told how to dress. Now, private school, they can tell them, but publicly funded schools, you cannot tell the teacher how to dress. So you're saying in every public school across the country, there is no dress code for the teachers? 85% of the time, no, if that district is under AFT or NEA. One of the uh, beauties of being a teacher, one of the powers of the union is that we get to dress how we want. And that conversation I, mean, I have with principals all the time is my teachers are coming in here like they're going to the club. Right. And there's nothing I, mean, I can do about it.
I mean, when you look at this outfit, this is literally something you would see in the club. But like, I'm, I'm going to have to side with her. I'm going to have to side with the teacher. K-5 teacher, the dress in and of itself is not designed to be provocative. She's just a well-built, quote-unquote, Here's that over, okay, no, that's not appropriate. That's not appropriate? That's not appropriate for a teacher. And I'm going to tell you why. Not only, is that jeans. Pro, not only is that provocative, that's too casual. That's not a professional outfit. The dress could be argued that if I was working at a regular routine business, I could wear this to work. She could wear that dress to work. She cannot wear those jeans and that top to work. So for me, I would take issue with the second outfit because it is provocative and it is not professional. The first one may be somewhat provocative, but it is still somewhat more professional than that. You don't go to school dressed like that. Yeah, I mean, personally, I, I have an issue with it. I think that when you have a job, mm -hmm. you should dress accordingly to that job. If you work on Wall Street, you don't come in with shorts and a, and a tattered T-shirt. You know, but then the counter argument, my way. argument to you would be, who's more responsible? The employee, okay, or the system of education? Because she can come to work like that because they say this is acceptable. You understand? It's the same argument when we talk about crime in the African-American community. Well, black men keep going back to jail. Why they can't stay out of jail? 87% recidivism rate. I understand that. Now let's talk about the box, the context in which the African-American male exists. 1970, they systematically start removing all the industrial building trade programs from the inner city African-American high schools. So up until 1970, you could go to high school, graduate, licensed to be a plumber, carpenter, electrician, mason, barber, over 12 trades. Most of us have grandparents, black and white, who was able to earn a decent living with a high school trades education. They took all them out in the 70s at the end of the black power movement on purpose to make sure independent black laborers could not finance the black power movement. And then in 1980, the CIA drops the crack cocaine off. And so black men unable to find a legal job participate in the CIA's illegal economy. Mind you, all the uh, factory jobs that were available were shipped out of the inner city. Even in North Philadelphia, where I live, you drive around, nothing but abandoned factories. They moved them out to create a context for incarceration. So who is responsible when the black male is miseducated, economically castrated, comes out of jail, cannot find any opportunity to set his life aright, can't get welfare, can't get health care, can't get public housing, can't get student loans, so he breaks the law again and goes back, we look at him. How about the system that creates the reality that necessitates that I commit a crime? Take me, I'm 40 years old, never been to jail. I work in them, I do a lot of prison work, but I've never been arrested, okay? Not yet. Anyhow, take my six degrees, take my doctorate, take my certs, give me a felony on my record. I have two daughters, if I have to feed them, and my ability to earn a decent living was stolen, I would have to consider, desperation would make me consider going to the corner to sell that package. You understand? Which is why we gotta be very careful about blaming the person or separating them from the context 
in which the behavior took place. The context in which she wore that dress is that the unions in the school district make it allowable. If we want to change the way she dresses, change the contract between the unions in the school districts. Now, one of the things that you said when talking about your school is that with the teachers that you wanted to hire for the school, you won't allow any teachers uh, who have relationships with people of other races. Yes. And so, and, you know, and so you wanted to only hire black teachers, so you're saying that that black teacher could not have a relationship with a white person, an Asian person, a, you know, and so forth. Not a romantic you know, relationship. Not a romantic relationship. Exactly. Not okay. a romantic relationship. Now, yes. why is that? Because me personally, most of my relationships have been with women of other races. Okay. Now, why, why do you have such an issue with that in terms of your school? Okay. Again, the Frederick Douglass Marcus Garvey Academy, being based on the principles of Pan-Africanism, is based on the belief that we need healthy black families. Our children need to see strong black men with strong black women in positive African-centered heterosexual relationships. In America, black men marry outside their race more than the men of every other race put together in the United States marries outside of theirs, speaking of percentages. What is it about the black man that has him so addicted to any other woman except his own? And it is the psychology of self-hatred. Mind you, up until 1967, when the Supreme Court struck down in Loving versus Virginia, the final laws in the country against miscegenation, you hardly find a black man married to a white woman. You wasn't allowed. You end up strange fruit hanging from the tree. Jim Crow did not tolerate it. So soon when the Supreme Court overturns Loving, and the movie is coming out, I just saw it. There's a movie on the Loving Supreme Court case. The case that ultimately destroyed Miscegenation laws is coming out soon. And I don't think that's a coincidence, by the way. But nonetheless, as soon as they struck that law down, black men went crazy. They went to find anything they could find that was not black because of the self-hate. If I look in the mirror and I don't like the way Umar Johnson looks, I definitely don't want my son or daughter resembling me. So what I'm going to do is conduct my own eugenics experiment. And I'm going to find a woman who has nothing in common with the women of my race. So when I look at my children, I don't have to see my ugly black face. And added to this is the fact that black women in America are the least likely to get married. Black women, only one out of four will get married. When I went to college, most of the white girls were married before we graduated. The black girls. Some of them in their 40s, still not married. Most of this has to do with America's war against the black man that incarcerates and exterminates. But some of this also have to do with the fact that us educated black men, once we get our doctorate degrees, our advanced master's degrees, we think we're too good to the, for the black woman and we run out and go marry someone else's daughter. And then we bring a child into this world who's biracial, who for my purposes is an African. I don't play biraciality. If your mother is black or your father is black, you're African because there is no 50-50 mix. The African is genetically dominant. We're not superior to no one, but we are genetically dominant. So that's an African child. I don't get into that. But working with biracial children, they go through a lot of psychological conflicts because you're half black and half white. You belong to the two most adversarial dichotomous races on the planet and you constantly have to navigate 
where you belong at. Even if you speak the biracial brothers in the hip hop industry, as swagalicious as they can be, when you sit down and have a conversation with a lot of them, they will tell you about the conflicts they had along the way arriving at their African identity. And a lot of this comes from the fact that the white mother that gives birth to the black child has a problem telling that child that you are black and going to have to learn how to exist as a black person. White mothers, in my experience, are less honest than white fathers. White fathers will tell their biracial child, you African. And I want you to understand that because that's how the world is going to treat you. Mothers, and I believe it's due to racism. I believe the white mother that gives birth to the African child is conflicted. Doesn't want to admit to herself that through her womb, she gave birth to an African. So she's more willing to have that child grow up thinking that I'm biracial, which doesn't even exist. Here, here's the, the interesting thing that, that I've started to notice recently is when you look at the entertainers out there, and this is the world that I, I function in most of the time, and you look at, like, for example, the Chris Browns of the world who are constantly getting in trouble. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, they're getting arrested, they're getting into fights, they're getting into social media wars and so forth. The type of people that you see doing this over and over again, the one thing that they seem to have in common is that none of them are ever married. Okay. And the thing is, is that when you have someone in a powerful position and you don't have a wife, Mm -hmm. or a very strong partner that's willing to give you their opinion with zero ulterior motives, you are going to be in a very different place than when you have a bunch of employees around you that know at any moment, if they upset you, they're fired. Mm -hmm. They're not going to give you the same level of advice and no true success can come from one person. It always comes from a team. I agree. So you, so you have these situations, because when you look at, for example, the Jay-Z's of the world, you look at the Ludacris's of the world, or you look at Kanye these days, they're not getting into fist fights, they're not going into these situations that are so self-harming mm -hmm. because they have someone in their corner. Marriage calms and, you down. It, 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 it matures you, yeah. it calms you down. But here's what I would say, with situations like with Chris Brown and other high-profile celebrities, I also think the media deliberately and in a very biased and discriminatory fashion, only shines a light on their public behaviors that are less than acceptable to the rest of us. They don't shine a light when they do positive things in the community. They don't shine a light when they do things that are advantageous to society because that's not popular. Let's be honest, the media loves sensationalism. So they will run out when Chris Brown gets the police called on him, but they won't run out when Chris Brown goes to the community center and spends his own money in his own time working with the young children there. So we have to look at the biased behavior of the media. But I agree with you, marriage does calm you down. But if you are a high profile personality, as I am, you often have to be careful as well in your search for that queen because there's so many ulterior motives. Often women may want the package, but not the personality. So if I look at me, for example, I come across a lot of beautiful black women. Excellent choices for wife. But the reason I'm slow to choose is because I know that for a lot of women, they will love the package. He's a PhD, he's self-employed, he's building a school, he's extremely popular, I know he can take care of me. But you're not looking at the other side, that this man is walking the same path as a Marcus Garvey, as a Malcolm X, as a Mega Evans. 
He might not come home tomorrow. Everything he got may be taken. Are you getting with Dr. Umar to help him achieve his mission? Or are you getting with Dr. Umar so he can hope, help you live the American dream? So you have to be very, very careful. I always say that if I knew I would be blessed or cursed to be given this responsibility, I would have had my wife beforehand. I would have made sure I had. If someone would have came to me and said, listen, 2009, your career is going to go to a whole nother place. You're going to be used to try to do something important for your people. I would have found a wife. It's hard to choose them now because you never know the ulterior motives. And that's just for me. I'm not the multi-million dollar rapper, actor. For them, I know it got to be even worse. Well, yeah, I mean, J. Cole married his high school sweetheart, you know, before he ever became Excellent a choice. or anything else like that. Because yeah. you knew her before the fame. But sometimes you don't have those high school sweethearts that are still available. Many of them have already found a husband. So sometimes it's difficult to go back to safe space. And then also when you're in such a quote unquote controversial line of work as I am, not every woman wants that. I mean, if you look at some of the wives of some of our greatest uh, freedom fighters, a lot of them, the wives did not want the life. They come to accept it. They learn to live with it. But I think if you ask some of them, if you could do this all over, would you have done this? Married a man who you knew would be assassinated, you know, 10 years into the marriage and you're left to raise those children with little or no support. I don't know if they would have went with it. So I think sometimes it has to be a calling. I think women, I think some of these women, I think Coretta Scott King, Betty Shabazz, Amy Garvey, uh, Mrs. Evers, I think, you know, that they were chosen by divine providence to walk with those men because it takes a special woman to walk with a man who's always walking around with that X on his chest. Well, yeah, I mean, I actually interviewed uh, Yasha Shabazz, uh, Malcolm X's daughter, recently, and she mm -hmm. talked about... My first book, Growing Up X, speaks to all of that, and it speaks mostly to uh, the will of my mother, you know, how she managed to smile, you know, in the face of her children, but was obviously in pain, you know, behind closed doors. She had six babies. She raised each one of us. She sent us to the best schools that she could because she knew that education was very important. Um, she didn't get any public grants or anything. She worked very hard to make sure that her husband's girls were properly educated, were properly um, self-sustaining, you know, that they were proud to be women, that they were proud to be people of the African diaspora, that they were proud to be Muslims. Going back to our earlier conversation about athletes being glorified, but not academic achievers, it's the same thing in a larger African-American community. We glorify the entertainers and the athletes. We don't glorify the freedom fighters. You understand? We will spend $500 to go see someone in concert, but we won't spend that $500 to necessarily build a hospital or, or factory or distribution network. So we have to look at how we, as a community, reward those who ignore us and punish the ones who die for us. It's one of the central contradictions within our political reality. Yeah. Well, you had a situation a while back where uh, this woman who called herself the conscious stripper, <laughs> I, uh, I, I guess, put you on blast. Like, what was that whole situation about? It's an old situation. It was a sister that I met. Okay, very beautiful. Uh, I met her down in Florida, Marcus Garvey celebration. I was the keynote, my Rastafari brothers hosted the event. Ironically, you're asking me this because I was just in Jamaica two weeks ago 
to keynote the Marcus Garvey celebration and uh, the same brothers brought me there. Shout out to Priest Dougie. Um, and so I met her. I was signing books and taking pictures at the end of my lecture. I think it was Black History Month or Kwanzaa. It was 2014. And uh, she waited by the side for me. Very beautiful woman with her son. Came up after. You know, she introduced herself, said, I'm a homeschooling mom. I'm trying to start a homeschooling network. I love what you do. And I'm from Philly. I said, for real? You from Philly? I'm from Philly. She says, yeah. I said, well, you come up. Let's connect, which we did. Um, and then on May 17th, the anniversary of the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision, I'm at a graduation for a friend of mine, Spelman College, down in Atlanta with her family. And all of a sudden, social network went crazy. And to this day, and of course that was two years ago, but to this day, I still don't know what the motive was. I still, we never had an argument. I don't know why that happened to this very day. I don't know if she was sent to do that. I don't know if there was something I did that she felt disrespected her. Uh, I don't know what the motive is to this day, you know, but it happened and it made me even more quote unquote paranoid about getting to meet women because you never know what they're going to do the day after they meet you. Yeah. I mean, I guess one of the things that I guess she claimed was that you had lost a, a $1 million donation from an I NBA did. player. I did. And I can tell you that. Oh, oh, so that's actually true. Oh, it's very true. It's very true. I was contacted by a relative of one of our top five NBA basketball players. Okay. I don't want to call his name because I really appreciate him even considering to do this, given who I am. And we were in talks for a couple of weeks, talking back and forth. He know about you. We got the book. We, we moving. We moving. That whole thing dropped with her. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'll never forget it. I'm about to speak at a juvenile detention center's conference. I'm backstage. I get the email. I'm sorry to tell you this, but he cannot be associated with that type of uh, energy or whatever it was. He won't be able to get a donation. Soon as I read the text, they came and said, the kids are ready for you. I couldn't even get out my seat. I had to take about five, 10 minutes to get myself ready. I was about to cry. I ain't going to lie. I was going to cry. I just lost a million dollars because of bad decisions. Now, there's the chance that they wasn't going to give me the money and simply use that as an excuse. That's always a possibility. Be that as it may, the bottom line was I would have never even known if that was the truth had this never happened. So it did cost me the million dollar donation. I was this close. And that dropped right before they was going to make the decision. One of the most unfortunate things in my, I'll never forget it because of when I find out right before I go talk to some young people. And that's when I saw it. I wish I never checked that text right then because it messed my whole day up. So you've never talked to her or anything else like that after the No, after she, the fact? she sent me a couple text messages. Uh, this would probably be, I want to say, a couple months post-scandal. Because again, that was two, months, two years ago almost. Um, but I didn't respond because I anticipated that that was more of a setup because I heard she was working on a book and all this other stuff, which was quite interesting since only saw you three times in the same week, three times in the same week. What book can you write off of three times in seven to nine days? So, but nonetheless, you know, I still hear she's out there lurking. She's still befriending people who know me. It ain't over. Oh, she's not done. I thought she was. She's not. She's done. But all I can say is I don't hold it against her. I made the bad decision. I take full responsibility for that. I just have to try to choose better. Today's episode of The Vlad Couch is brought to you by Uber. We've all taken Uber on where we need to go in a pinch, but did you know that Uber is the ultimate side hustle? Driving Uber is a new way to earn extra cash whenever you want, and it's not another J-O-B. 
We've all taken jobs to get extra cash, but nothing works with you the way Uber does. It's totally flexible. You can earn extra dough. You can turn it on and off just like your car. Got a few extra hours to spare? Drive with Uber. If you're driving right now, you should be earning right now. And every day is a payday when you drive with Uber because you can cash out anytime with instant pay. With instant pay, cash out your earnings up to five times a day. Crazy. Five times a day with no minimum amount required. Listen, if you enjoy earning extra cash, if there's something special you'd like to buy, your car can start making you money. So go ahead and get your side hustle on. Sign up to drive with Uber today. Go to uber.com slash drive right now. That's uber.com slash drive right now. Need it one more time? U-B-E-R dot com slash drive right now. You criticized Obama. Yes. On a, on a number of occasions. Yes. Now, now I'll be honest. As, as someone who grew up in the, you know, in the U.S., I remember watching the old Chris Rock uh, stand-up specials where he said there's never going to be a black president. I remember that. There's never even going to be a black vice president because the first thing that happens, some black guy is going to kill the president, be a hero in prison because the, the vice president will then become the president. I was honestly surprised that in my lifetime there was a black president and a two-term black president as that. And, and the one thing that I can't say, and, and this is my own personal opinion, as I go through life and as I build my business and I do separate, you know, different types of things, the first thing I usually look for is what's the role model? Who's already doing what I want to do? How are they doing it? And let me so- somewhat emulate what they're doing and use them as a, as a blueprint to where I want to go. And I don't think you could deny that having a black president is inspirational for black kids Mm-hmm. all around the world, not just America, to say, wow, someone who looks like us can have the highest job in the land, if not the world, when at one point we weren't even considered humans. We weren't, people didn't even think we could read. You know, we were bred like cattle, you know, in, in terms to try to create the biggest slaves and so forth. To go from that to actually say, here's someone who actually did a job and even got reelected. You can't say that that's not a role model. I would say he's not a role model. A role model is someone whom you would like other African-American boys to aspire to be. When you look at President Barack Obama's political behavior in the White House towards African-Americans, I cannot in good conscience want any African-American boy to emulate the neglect that their president has shown for African-Americans. In fact, when you look at the black reality, each index of black progress has actually regressed since Obama has been in the White House. Dropout is higher, unemployment is worse, incarceration is higher, police brutality has almost went back to the days of reconstruction pre-Jim Crow. Mind you, he's done nothing about it Okay, now I understand the argument. He's president for the United States of America. He's not just president of black America. I understand. But here's the issue with that black. America is not a a, uh, amalgamation of different ethnicities. America is a solid bowl. Okay. And in a solid bowl, you still have every vegetable maintaining its own uniqueness. 
A solid is not a soup. In a soup, you cut it all up and you don't know what's in this soup. But in a solid, everything maintains its identity. The Chinese, the Italian, the Irish, the European Jew, everyone retains their identity. Which means that if you want to take care of the American people, there is no homogenous American people, Vlad. There is only subgroups of America. So Obama took care of the homosexual minority subgroup. He took care of the female minority subgroup. He took care of the immigrant minority subgroup, but the group that built the United States of America, that made it what it is, African people received no direct attention from the president of the United States. How can you say he's the president of all people when he's act specifically for gays? Everybody in America not gay, but Obama gave homosexuals three laws, a Supreme Court justice, more than 250 federally appointed jobs. He gave the Latinos a Supreme Court justice, unprecedented laws, white women, the Equal Pay Act. He put us another female in the Supreme Court. So he's done things for female minorities, gay minorities, uh, Latino minorities. He's done nothing for African-Americans. I cannot look to him as a role model. If Frederick Douglass were alive, if Marcus Garvey were alive, if Dr. King were here and now, he would be criticizing Obama as much as I. His choice of words may be different, but he would have to. Because even Dr. King spoke of how the power structure loves to use black faces to hide the racist agenda of the system. In fact, before Obama got elected, I'm the only black scholar I know of, of prominence, who actually said this was not gonna be a good thing for black folks. And people said, how can you say that? I said, it's real simple. Look at the condition of black people with black politicians in office. Do you realize since the rise of the black politician, post-civil rights, post-Dr. King assassination, the condition of the black community gets worse the more we elect black people. We get a black governor, we do worse. A black mayor, we do worse. Black state reps, U.S. reps, councilmen, aldermen. Uh, why do we do worse? You know why? Because 99% of all black elected officials, Obama on down, are financed by the Democratic Party, white corporations, and by some of the same entities that we as a people have to challenge. How can he carry out a black agenda when he's financed with white money? The only way black America is going to get elected officials that do the work of black people is to dig in our pockets and finance them ourselves. We vote. Voting is important, but you did not finance. The only way you control a politician's behavior is when you control the pot of money he uses to get elected in the first place. Well, for example, I interviewed Praz from mm -hmm. the Fugees. You donated $1.2 million to, to Barack Obama's campaign? Yo, where you getting these information from? Is that not true? I'm starting to think you CIA, man. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, this yeah, is I mean, what I do. It's true. You know it's out there like now. You... It's out. It's out in the in the in, in the in, in the universe. Yeah, I did. To his to a super pack. Through a super pack. So so your corporation donated 1.2 million dollars to the Barack Obama super pack. No no no. To a super pack that backs Obama. He didn't have a super pack. You don't need to be given any white entity that type of money. Okay, first of all, you shouldn't be spending that type of money on elected politics. If I would have spoke to the brother and we met before because when I was 
uh, back with the Black Student Union back in my Millersville University days. We brought the Fugees up there, so I met Pariah. Shout out to him, okay? But that money should be going towards an institution, or if you want to put it all towards politics, it should be going towards a black political union, not a black party. A lot of folks think we need a black political party. A black political party still will not win against the Democrats or the Republicans because we are a numerical majority in the country. What we need is black power. Put that money in a black pack political action committee and then that way we can hold either candidate responsible. The problem with black America is we have a love affair with the Democratic Party that has long since expired any benefit it may have accorded to us. We vote Democrat every election, irregardless of whether or not the Democrats say they're going to do anything for African-Americans. Let's take Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton hasn't stated one objective, measurable outcome we can look forward to if, when she ascends to the White House. Not one. But every black celebrity is running behind her. Even the parents of our slain children, murdered by the police, running behind Hillary. We think she's going to do something. We think. Stop thinking and meet and demand, if you want me to go public for you, what are we going to get in exchange? And I don't want a philosophical, I'm going to make America better for blacks. I need it to be measurable. Are you going to do something about prison? Are you going to do something about the schools? Are you going to do something about police brutality? We have to stop endorsing white political candidates before we get any concessions. Black America will never get nothing out of the power structure with this type of behavior. We hate the Republicans, no conversation. Love the Democrats, we're gonna give you all our votes, no conversation. So what happens? Neither party takes you seriously because you pledge your vote before you even find out what the agenda is. Imagine walking into a supermarket and you're looking for some bread and you grab any old bread. You just like the way it looks, so you grab it. You didn't look at the ingredients, you didn't look at the price, you didn't look at how long the bread has been there. I'm just gonna buy it because this is the bread that my mom always bought. How you know that's the healthiest bread for your family? You don't know, you don't even care because you're shopping for what it looks like, not for actually what it is. Our political behavior is extremely retarded and a lot of that comes from the black church who actually benefits from black people's political retardation because if black people were politically progressive, we probably wouldn't go to church as much as we do because the purpose of church is to make oppression divine. The purpose of church is to evangelize, evangelize white supremacy. The purpose of church is to make you comfortable with nothing because after you die, God is going to give you everything. The, the current paradigm of black religion is totally advantageous to white supremacy. There is no church I know of with a bank that's trying to build. There's no church I know of that's putting black people to work. Every church I know of is colorblind. They don't deal with black issues. They're God loves everybody. We can't see colors, which means you can't solve the problems of black people. So we have to look at how the black community is set up. It's not by accident. So if I'm running for office, guess the first place I'm going to go. The first place I'm going to visit if I'm running for office is the black church. Because I know if I get that preacher, he's going to use the Bible and evangelize my campaign and make all these black folks vote for a white person or a black person who don't plan to do anything for them. Recently, I had Mark Lamont Hill. Mm -hmm. From you know, Philadelphia here. as myself. Mm -hmm. And he mentioned something that was kind of interesting. The prison begins after, uh, after slavery. 
you know, you had all these people on all these plantations, all these farms who are making money. America is built on the exploitation of black labor. America is built on slave labor. Mm -hmm. So slavery ends and suddenly the slave codes turn into black codes, right? Because the 13th mm -hmm. Amendment abolishes slavery, right? But it only abolishes slavery except under the condition of prison. In other words, if you commit a crime, if you're incarcerated, according to the 13th Amendment, slavery is still allowed. And right after that, we had just reported that there was a nationwide prison protest against uh, prison labor. Mm. Where, you know, and I talked to a couple of people that had been to prison who had been there for a number of years, and they were saying how they get like 17 cents an hour Mm -hmm. work, working, you know, how like after three years they made like $340 mm -hmm. or something like that. Yeah. Like, how do you feel about that? Uh, first of all, he's absolutely correct. The 13th Amendment outlawed slavery by the individual, but then it inlawed slavery by the state. And it validated reincarceration through mass incarceration. So any, what they did was they said, okay, we got 4 million blacks who are about to be free. 4 million jobless. We freed them, but we gave them no opportunity, which means they still depended on us. It just transformed the system. So, and we're not going to give them a job. That means these black men and women have to do what? They have to break the law to feed their family. So what they did to create this mass incarceration system, which was designed to do what? Remove blacks from the functioning society. Get them out the way. So they're not, so they don't threaten anything we're trying to do. So what did they do? They upgraded petty crimes and made them felonies. If you didn't have a job, you go to jail. If you didn't have a home, you go to jail. You out past curfew, you go to jail. You don't have ID, you go to jail. I mean, any little petty offense could put you in prison for years. This was done intentionally. Why? Because the former plantation owners needed workers and they didn't want to pay for them. So what's the cheapest form of labor? Mass incarcerate the ex-slave and then force him out, hire him out, contract him out onto the chain gang. Same thing they're doing today. You see, this was done by design. At the end of the Civil War, there was no large-scale federal prison system. You didn't have the sophisticated statewide prison networks you have today. That came post-13th Amendment, post-1865, to make sure we had a Negro removal program that took ex-slaves out of society and put them back on the chain gangs. And you still have chain gangs today. Angola Prison down in Louisiana, I believe it is. They still have brothers out picking cotton and other crops with a white man on horseback with a rifle. No different than an overseer 150 years ago. And someone just sent me live pictures from it. Looks just like a scene from the 1760s, but it was in 2015. So slavery hasn't went anywhere, okay? And, 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 and all of this, again, was by design, okay? The black man is not born a criminal. The black man is made a criminal. Ironically, who sold the drugs in America back in the 1920s? Who ran the gangs in America back in the 1920s? Who sold the dope and ran the booze? Irish gangsters, Jewish gangsters, Italian gangsters. Why did they do it? Because they were not considered white people until 1940. So they broke the rules to feed their family. But nobody said they was born to be criminals. But all of a sudden, 1940 comes, they're upgraded to white status. So we're going to give the Irish the police department and the Italians the fire department and the European Jews, the civil service jobs in every major city's government, which they still own and control to this day. And all we're gonna do is push the black males into the criminal underworld that was formerly occupied by the European gangs. Criminals 
are made. Well, it's interesting because when we put this article up, this huge debate just broke out where it's like, well, they're criminals. You know, they deserve to, you know, to be there and they deserve to have to do the slaver. And it's like, well, they're already in prison. <laughs> You're already being punished by being put in a cage. And as someone, I've never done any real jail time, but I did a weekend mm-hmm. here and there for, mm-hmm. you know, just petty stuff. So being in a cage is a pretty severe punishment in and of itself. But as an employer, I really don't understand why I have to pay my employees a, a certain amount of money based on their skills, whereas a prison could just put all these men to work, profit from it, and only pay them 17 cents an hour. Like, why not, for example, pay them a proper wage, but a certain percentage of the wage goes to the victims? Mm. You know, that's something that I, I would be, I'd be completely for. But here's but, the thing. Most of them are not in prison for violent crime. Most black men in jail in America are in prison for non-violent drug-related offenses. Most of them are not. Most criminals are not there for violent crimes. And crime is a function of the state. Whatever behavior the state considers to be a threat to its monopoly of domination is automatically criminalized. What's going on in America now? The decriminalization of marijuana. But I haven't heard no person yet argue that reparations is owed to all Americans alive or their descendants if they're no longer alive, if they were formerly incarcerated for marijuana use. How can America be marijuana be acceptable all of a sudden? But you've put thousands of people in jail for smoking it, possession, distribution, and now it's legal. Same thing with alcohol during the prohibition. It'll send you to jail then, but it's legal today. So is crime really about what's right and wrong? That's the question. Is crime about what is right or what is wrong? Or is crime simply the mask that we use to hide the government's agenda to get rid of certain populations? Yeah, no, I feel you. What's your take on uh, Kaepernick and- I love it. Shout out to The whole situation with, you know, athletes protesting. I love what he did, but it would have been so much stronger if the whole team would have done it. We haven't had a major black athlete take a stand like that since the brothers put the fist up at the Olympics since the days of Muhammad Ali. You don't see that type of bold, unapologetic, alpha male black man behavior from our athletes. Most of them, as physically imposing as they are, are extremely docile. Michael Jordan, for example. Michael Jordan, when people, when young brothers was killing each other in the streets over Michael Jordan sneakers, he didn't say a word. Michael Jordan was the prototype of the modern day athlete. He was Joe Lewis on steroids. I'm not going to say nothing. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I have no social responsibility to people who look like me whatsoever. And then to prove y'all I don't have no social responsibility to people who look like me. Once I divorced my first wife who was black, I'm going to marry a young white one. So you can clearly see what Michael Jordan's mindset is. But what Colin did was right. It was powerful. I stand by him. I can't wait to get one of his jerseys. He may suffer because of it. He may suffer because of it, but his self-respect and the respect he's going to get from a lot of us on the bottom is going to go through the roof because he took a stand. He took a stand. I didn't stand up for the uh, Star Spangled Banner. Do you know what that flag represents to black people? 
Would you ever ask a European Jew to stand up for the singing of the Nazi national anthem? So if a European Jew don't have to stand for Hitler's anthem, no black person should have to stand for the national anthem or the Star Spangled Banner. When I went to Scotland school, which was a preparatory military academy, they wanted to throw me out because I didn't pledge the flag. But when they contacted the state, the state said that the federal courts have already decided on this. You cannot make a child say the Pledge of Allegiance in school. So they wanted to throw me out, but they could not do that. So I appreciate what he did, but here's the thing that needs to be understood. All progress and all change is made in a group. The individuals might spark the change, but it is the group that ultimately realizes it. What if all black athletes did that? That's what we need. We need mass direct action. Dr. King, Marcus Garth, mass direct action. What he did was right, but it would have been better if the other brothers would have stood with him. Well, you are seeing more athletes now. Like there, there's been more and more athletes who are not standing, that are you know raising their fists and so forth. One of the things that just happened, though, was the Seattle Seahawks uh, announced that they would uh, stand with their arms uh, interlocked okay. during during the national anthem. Yeah. And you know, one of the uh, a woman who had been on our show recently, uh, Miko Grimes, uh, who's the wife of an NFL player, she called them a bunch of pussies for doing that. The players called the players. Called the whole is team. She black or white? What, is she black or white? She's black. She's black. Well. She, and I don't know the sister, but for her to chastise brothers who take a stand against white supremacy means she's an agent of that white supremacy. See, one thing well, you got to understand about well, no, I mean, she, she, she's criticizing them because as opposed to not standing, they're all standing, but with their arms that are locked. Oh, as opposed to taking the seat. Right. I understand. Here's right. what I would say to that. I understand where she's coming from, yeah. but something is better than nothing. Something is better than nothing. You got to start somewhere. Anytime an athlete shows any type of social consciousness towards their people, I have to commend them. They might not have the courage of a Kaepernick. They might not have the political influence either because he's a superstar. You understand? Some of these brothers who interlock their arms, they might not be a superstar. Colin Kaepernick is pretty much indispensable, so to speak. He's one of the top 25 athletes, you know, in the world, I would say. So he has some leverage. LeBron. You know, if he did something like that, he could do that. LeBron is indispensable to the NBA's pocketbook. Okay, Colin Kaepernick is indispensable to the 49ers pocketbook, but some of these other guys may not be. So we have to make sure we're not too quick to judge because when you criticize and attempt to do something right, then you reduce the likelihood that they will ever try anything again. It's like when people ask me about the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, say, you know, they running around and they disrupting political meetings. I might not agree with everything they do, but I can respect that they're trying to do something. I might not agree with it, but because the effort is there to make a difference, I got to respect it. I'm not going to sit there and criticize every little thing and why they didn't do it this way. They are trying. And it's been 50 years since we've seen black college students, black college students get involved in any serious social protest. The last time we seen this was the sit-ins, the Freedom Rides, Stokely Carmichael, H. Rap Brown. We haven't seen the level of social consciousness on the university campus that we see today. So I have to respect it and withhold the criticism. Well, what's interesting about the, the Kaepernick situation, and we, we had posted a story about this also, there was, a, there was a, a story written on the Bleacher Report where it was anonymous sources, but they had spoken to a bunch of the executives in the front office of the mm -hmm. 49ers 
and they basically, you know, their take was, fuck this guy, he'll never work again, his career is over, and so mm-hmm. forth. And there was an interview recently with Harry Belafonte where they mm-hmm. brought that to his attention. And what he said was kind of interesting. He said that uh, to mute the slave is always the goal of the slave owner. Oh, without question, because revolution is contagious. The 99th monkey experiment, it only takes 1% of a population committed to what they're trying to do to influence the other 99%. And they understand, you have to realize, the American sports enterprise, which is one of its top exports, black music is America's second largest export. Black music and black athletics is at the foundation of American corporate power. So they have to be very careful about how they let athletes and entertainers express themselves because they could trigger rebel. If Jay-Z wanted to, he could probably do more today than a Dr. King and a Malcolm did 40 years ago. Why? Because he has the position, the influence, and most of all the money. Malcolm had to get his money. King had to get his money. The Honorable Marcus Messiah Garvey had to get his money. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad had to get his money. Jay got his money. If him and Beyonce wanted to, they could start a revolution. The question becomes, and I'm not singling them out, I'm just bringing them up because they're prominent. Any name could be used in their place. Are you willing to pay the sacrifice that must be paid in order to push black America forward? Anyone who has helped push us forward had to pay a sacrifice, whether it was jail, whether it was reputation, whether it was employment, whether it was their lives. But freedom is not free. It cannot be voted away. It cannot be prayed away. It cannot be negotiated away. Okay? It has to be fought. And not just physically. Economics is a form of war. Propaganda is a form of war. Finance is a form of war. But many of our athletes and entertainers are so comfortable they're not willing to risk that. See, 50 years ago, the athletes and entertainers didn't live much better than the regular black folks. They had a status that was great but they didn't have the financial elitism of today. Today's black athlete and entertainer has millions of dollars that many of them don't want to liquidate. It's like when people ask me, why haven't I been on Oprah Winfrey's show yet? You're the top black school psychologist in America, hands down, okay? You've never been on Oprah Winfrey's show, but she made Dr. Phil a millionaire. She's not going to bring me on her show because Oprah Winfrey, and I'm not attacking her, I, I actually applaud her success, but she made her success by pleasing and accommodating white females. That's her predominantly viewing audience. She's not going to blank, blank, bring Dr. Umar Johnson on her couch so I can say publicly that the reason black boys are not learning in school is because middle-class white female teachers are racist and don't care about their best interests. She don't want me saying that on the show. Okay? People are afraid of the truth and they will muffle it. That's why whenever there's conversations about black America, who do you see? No disrespect to none of them, by the way. Mark Lamont Hill, Tavis Smiley, Cornell West. Why Dr. Umar Johnson not in those conversations? Especially when you're dealing with mental health and education. My expertise far exceed any of them in those areas. But you don't get me there. You know why? Because they know that their responses are going to be somewhat tempered. My response is going to be the brutal truth. It won't be disrespectful, but it will be honest. You can't put me on CNN with Anderson's Cooper and tell it like it is because it'll wake black folks up. So they know who to use and who to not use. The black bourgeoisie has been meticulously created by the power structure to control black advancement. That can allow Umar Johnson on those airwaves. You're listening to the Vlad Koch, and today we're sponsored by Mafia 3. Picture it, 1968, 
New Bordeaux, Louisiana, the rules of organized crime have changed. After years of combat in Vietnam, Lincoln Clay knows this truth. Family isn't who you're born with, it's who you die for. When a surrogate family, the black mob, is slaughtered by the Italian mafia, Lincoln builds a new family on the ashes of the old and blazes a path of military-grade revenge through the brutal criminal underworld responsible. This is Mafia 3. It's available October 7th on PS4, Xbox One, and PC. But guess what? You can enter to win a copy of Mafia 3. Just go to mafiagame.com slash thevladcouch for a chance to win. That's Mafia 3. Pre-order now on PS4, Xbox One, and PC. Available October 7th. Rated M for Mature. Well, you had said in a previous interview that you feel that Prince was murdered by Warner Brothers and Michael Jackson was murdered by Sony. Yes. For, the, for their music catalog. Yes. Without question. Michael Jackson owned, okay, the rights to the Beatles. He owned a significant portion of Elvis's catalog. Who's more popular than them two guys in, in the world of white music? And a black man owns the rights. Sony Records deliberately sabotaged Michael Jackson's last album, Invincible, to guarantee that he would be into debt to the corporation so he would have to pay them back by giving up the catalog. Okay? And ultimately, that's why he was murdered. He should have never came back to the Staples Centers to prepare for those concerts that he had lined up. Those concerts would have gave him the liquid cash to pay off his debt to Sony and keep his catalog. So in order to make sure you get the catalog back, you got to make sure that Michael never goes on tour to get the liquid cash. Michael wasn't broke. He just didn't have the liquid cash. He had the assets. He didn't have the liquid money. And from what I heard, the catalog is no longer in the Jackson family's possession. Sony. Well, they, the, the catalog was partially sold, I believe, to Sony okay. after, after his death. Well, Michael Jackson, I guess at the time, he was having some financial issues. But mm -hmm. once, once he died and the state came in and cleaned up his finances, he, he became one of the richest dead celebrities on the planet. Oh, yeah. Well, Michael Jack, well, he's the highest selling recording artist of all time. He yeah. sold more than a billion albums. No one else has ever done that. You know, but the, the music industry functions like any other white racist society. It's get down to lay down. So Michael was murdered. He was murdered without no question. And Prince, who do you know? Here's the interesting thing about the Prince murder. He was sick with the flu, but he was riding his bike in the park a day or two before he died. Who do you know with the flu takes a ride in cold Minnesota, okay, with the flu? Nonsense. Prince was murdered. They found him in the elevator, gasping for air, whatever the situation is. He was murdered too. And I think the, the problem that he made was he went back to the table to negotiate with Warner Brothers. They wanted to uh, remix the uh, Purple Rain 20 or 30 year anniversary album. He agreed to that. First of all, who calls you up and say, we want to give you your masters? That's the first question. Who calls anyone up and says, we want to give you your masters back? He's been fighting for his masters his whole career. All of a sudden, out the blue, you want to give him his masters? That was the Machiavellian give in order to take, to get back into Prince's life, find exactly what he was up to. Prince's death, Michael's death, was for the Beatles catalog and his share of Elvis's catalog. Prince was murdered for his unpublished material. They said Prince was almost like a Tupac, maybe even more than Tupac. They said Prince had enough unpublished material that you could release an album a year for the next 100 years. 
they didn't care about the purple rain. They want the unpublished material because that stuff is ultimately worth billions. You got to understand, Prince's fans are like no other fans. I know because I have an aunt who is a Prince fan. I mean, they, they are like no other fans. So you get your hands on a dead artist's unpublished material? It's jackpot. He was murdered for what had not been released yet. My, uh, Michael was murdered for what he owned. Well, you had mentioned Tupac also. You felt that Tupac was... Oh, Tupac was murdered without question, Tupac. The FBI was, uh, had Tupac and Big, for that matter, under surveillance for at least a week prior to the murder. So that means even the murder was caught on tape by the FBI. Now, mind you, Pac was a serious threat. His mother was Afeni Shakur, former leader of the New York City Panthers. This is the same black woman who walked into a New York City federal courthouse pregnant with Tupac and defended herself and 20 other Panthers from that famous Panther 21 trial when they were charged with plotting to blow up federal buildings, which was nothing but a COINTELPRO setup. Pregnant with Pac. No legal experience. This black woman defends herself and all 20 of them, 21 of them, walk out of prison. So naturally, the child of that has to be watched. Geronimo Pratt, his godfather, Mutulu Shakur, I believe possibly the stepfather. At the time of his death, he was um, working to politicize the Crips and the Bloods in L.A. Tupac was a threat. The number one selling rapper in the world, okay, is a revolutionary. They could not allow that. After he split from death row, Tupac was on his way to do some revolutionary things, so they cut him down before he could grow. Well, I mean, I actually researched this story and spoke to people who were actually there and, and mm -hmm. so forth, and people that were close to the situation. You can't deny that right before Tupac was killed, he beat, he beat up a known gangbanger and murderer. Okay. And from everything that points to it, this was repercussion to what had just happened a few hours you know, previously. I mean, you could create the whole conspiracy theory and so forth, mm -hmm. but when you look at the actual chain of events, you know, because some people are saying, oh, well, Suge Knight set him up. And it's like, you're really going to set up someone? You're going to have someone assassinated while you're in the car with him and the car is riddled with bullets and so forth? Mm -hmm. I mean, Tupac's you, you, have to, you have to look at the facts of a situation sometimes. Tupac's assassination was a political assassination. It was not due to the gang situation at all. Mm -hmm. that, that, that was totally political. And mind you, he arrived to the hospital alive. See, we also have to look at that, too. Tupac arrived at the hospital alive. Okay. Very bad, very bad. Very shot. bad, but he survived a few days. Not to say that it wasn't the shooting that killed him, but we do know we have a history of black uh, radical figures going into the hospital alive, okay, and then dying shortly thereafter. Okay, and I also think that it's no coincidence that Eazy-E, Tupac, and Big all died within a year of one another, pretty much. Pac was, what, 95? I think Eazy was 94. No, Big was 97. Pac was 95. And Eazy was 94. Or something like that. I okay. think Eazy was, like, 92. Nah, Easy wasn't 92. 92, I graduated from high school. Easy was still alive hold, hold, hold in 92. Easy died 95. You're right. Easy 95, Pac 96, Big 97. Look at that. One year for three consecutive years, three of the top rap personalities exited out. So, I mean, we all know about the hip hop police. 
We all know yeah, that, I, you yeah. know. Actually, we, actually, right. I just looked it up. So, yeah. Easy yeah. E 95, Tupac 96, Big 95, E 96. 96, 96. Exactly. It's, it's no coincidence. But the music industry is a secret society. And the music industry's job is to do what? Promote and propagate the images that are most advantageous for the power structure to use in order to facilitate its agenda. If we want black men in jail and dead, we need black rappers to promote a constant message of destruction and degeneracy. Every rap video has four elements in it. Killing black people, using women, smoking weed, selling dope, and worshiping materialism. Every rap video. The lyrics might be different, the beat might be different, but the five elements of destruction are there present in every single rap video made except for the conscious rappers, the common sense, the dead prezes, the Talib Kweli's, uh, the immortal techniques. But mainstream rap is nothing more than a billboard for why don't we just all go to jail or die.